Welcome to the Awareness Podcast. Every Friday, one of our four hosts, Bill Free, Jenny Beale, Cindy Krupp, and Susan Telford, will discuss spiritual awakening in everyday life with their guests. Listen as they discuss their newest insights and share what is helping them remove the obstacles to self-realization, inner peace and happiness. Hello everyone, I'm your host Jenny Beale and this is the Awareness Podcast. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Anne Hay to talk about her journey towards living in not knowing. Anne is a writer and a poet and she lives in Edinburgh, Scotland. So as usual, I'll start by telling you a little bit about Anne's background. As a child, Anne loved stories, myths and fairy tales. After watching the film Lost Horizon in her early teens, Anne decided that the peace and happiness of Shangri-La was what she wanted. When she was 19, she was followed in a dark street, pushed against a wall and sexually assaulted during which her awareness soared beyond her physical body and she experienced a deep peace and lack of fear. The experiential knowledge of something beyond consensus reality remained after that encounter, despite her having no words to describe it. Over the years, there were more such glimpses, such as during childbirth and at the death of both of her parents. In her 30s, she joined a school of Advaita Vedanta in Edinburgh, where practice included meditation, selfless service, and surrendering the fruits of action. After 12 years, she left the school and joined the TM movement. But after a few years, she recognized that spiritual organizations were not for her. And she set up a Socrates cafe in Edinburgh, which encouraged listening, questioning and empathy in the examination of topics chosen by the group. In 2018, following cancer treatment, she reached another crossroads in her life. A therapist she knew introduced her to the teachings of Rupert Spira, where she began to find the freedom and joy she'd always sought. Then, during the COVID pandemic, she discovered Francis Lucille's online satsangs. After the first online meditation session, she knew that after a lifelong search, she had come home. So, going back to your teenage years, and that, that film, Lost Horizon, must somehow have pointed to something that you knew existed, you existed maybe within your yourself, maybe not, uh, a place of peace, harmony. Can, can you say something more about that? Yes, I was lucky to have a father who had had um, similarly um, an experience of coming close to death when he was 18 and it was um, after a parachute jump. So he, he, he was very keen on showing me how to be peaceful and uh, not all children and, and certainly me. I was not always uh, willing to do this. So he took me out in, onto a loch in Scotland and um, without a book, which was absolutely terrible for me, and said, listen to the birds, you know, look how peaceful it is. I think, right. <laughs> then, you know, but given that you, you can't do anything else, you eventually do discover that it's, it is beautiful to watch the water and listen to curlews. Yeah. So I was lucky to have a, a father like that. So yeah. I was very interested in, in the film. And the bit that really sticks out for me was when the Dalai Lama was talking to somebody who had, um, I mean, the film, in the film, there's a car crash. So people land up in Shangri-La and they haven't, they haven't planned it. They just find themselves there in this, this community. But there's one person, the lead character, who's, who's really quite 
taken and interested, and he has a chat to the Dalai Lama. And the Dalai Lama says to them, look at, the, look at that aeroplane there. You see its shadow goes up and down over the hills. But the aeroplane just goes straight across. And that image stayed for well, it stayed with me for the whole of my life. I thought that 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 sounds good. Yes. It was an early glimpse of, of something beyond the ordinary and yes. So that traumatic time when when you were raped, what what was it that that experience told you? And was there any connection with uh, with that shadow of the aeroplane and the aeroplane itself? Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think I was raped. I, 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 I mean, if you come out of your body, it's impossible to tell. But I think there would have been some. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't think so. I think what mm. happened was um, I was out on my own. I thought I was being followed. I started to run. The man started to run. I thought. Oh, I'm I'm not imagining this. And I did the horror movie thing where you run into a dead end. And I thought, that that's it. I'm, I'm done, I'm done for. And you you took me and put me against the wall. And I can't I can't remember if his hand was there or but anyway, I do remember thinking, I I will do anything to wake up tomorrow. Um, and then I just soared out of my body. Right, and as, as I can remember it into the sky, although memory plays strange tricks, and I think the mind makes a sense and maybe a scenario out of things that are indescribable. Mm. And then I would look down and I saw this young girl who was 19 and thought, this, this is a shame, a shame. But it was a sense of detachment. There was no fear at that moment. I was completely peaceful. Um, obviously, that did not last. I came very quickly back to my, my body, um, surge of adrenaline, and I ran. I injured myself very badly. So I was walking home. I, I was bleeding. I was probably crying. And then I walked through a park. And there was Sonny Lumiere, there was beautiful classical music and coloured lights. And I was just thinking, this is so beautiful. And the world is both terrifying and beautiful. So I didn't, I did hardly slept that night. I couldn't, you know, I didn't know how to make sense of it. I was a long way from home. I was... I was in the south of France, and I lived in Scotland. Wow. So, yes, it was the defining episode of my life, I think, in a number of ways. How, how did that affect your life after the event when you, when you got back to Scotland, to your old life? Um, well, it was funny. Not not immediately. I, you know, I was back in the bosom of my family, and I didn't really discuss it much. My mother was very upset at various things that happened during my opiate. Mm. So I didn't really want to. I, I couldn't. I didn't have words. I mean, I didn't know what an out of body experience was. I just so I just got on with life. Um, but. At the back, I, I two things I realized. One, life is so short. It can be so short. Mm. And that, you know, when I was told I had cancer, it was just I had this thought, wow, that was that was very quick. <laughs> and I was 64 at the time, and I thought, 64 years, that was that went like that. So one life is very short. And two. There's much more to it than anybody's telling me. Mm. And then um, much later, you joined a, 
an advisor for dentist school in Edinburgh, and you you studied with them for quite a quite a while. What what were you looking for when, when you joined that school? I can still remember the advert. It said things like, for thoughtful men and women seeking an understanding of the world in which they live. Um, but it drew on the, the great philosophical traditions of East and West. This is basically Shangri-La plus Western philosophy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is going to give me everything I've ever thought, you know. And I was young and I had a young family and they were, and basically it was a night away from the family. So anything, I'm, you know, happy to do anything to, you know, be relieved of domesticity for a night and somebody else was putting the children to bed. So, um, and I met some great people, but um, the first evening we did a, a meditation exercise. It was a very embodied exercise called, well, it was called the exercise. It's not a difficult name to remember, but you would just simply sit in your chair, feet on the floor. Um, you'd feel the, your arms on the, the table or whatever. Feel the air and face and your hands and that you're listening run out to the furthest and quietest sound and rest in that. And at that moment, I thought, what I experienced was, ah, th this is it. I, I recognize this. And I, I told, you know, they said, well, feedback. And I said, oh, yes, it was lovely. And I'd forgotten this was available. And the tutor said, yeah, that's, that's how it is. <laughs> and I thought, yeah. He know he knows. People here know about things. Um, so we, we were a, a Scottish outpost. I mean, there's been a lot written and said about the School of Philosophy and School of Economic Science, which I don't want to go into. But uh, my experience, certainly for the first few years, in a we, it was an outpost in Edinburgh, and the man in charge was had a similar relationship that. Nicola Sturgeon does to the UK government. So suffice <laughs> it to say, he didn't do everything he was told. And he didn't follow everything that happened um, down there, as we called it, yes. uh, to our advantage. So I was, I was very happy. We made great friends. We had great discussions, which we continued in, in a pub afterwards till um, half past 11 sometimes. Um, but to cut a long story short, I, as I did more and more, took on more roles in the school, I decided it was not for me. There was something missing. And then you joined the TM movement. That was presumably because for you, meditation was important. Yes. Yes, I, th I thought meditation, and I still think meditation is the key. You know, yes, of course, you need the understanding as well. But things happen in the meditation that are transformative. Yeah. I think you call them numinal, numinal experiences. Um, I didn't want to lose that. I wanted some connection with people who talked about these matters. Yeah, yeah. But uh, still, something was missing, obviously, because you then left that organisation too. You weren't completely satisfied. What, what was it that was that was missing? Well, I mean, you know, I liked fairy tales. I mean, to go back to Goldilocks, I think the school was too tight, and for me. You know, and the TM was too loose. Um, I, I, there was a lot of joy and freedom in TM, but and there was more structure in the school. So what I really wanted was a combination of of both, and, and I had a great time there. 
learning yogic, well, yogic bouncing, I call it. <laughs> it was enormous fun. <laughs> it's not it's not a skill that um it's essential for daily life, but it was, it was, it was fun when it lasted. <laughs> Sounds a little bit painful, really. <laughs> <laughs> not not at all. Well, they had padded padded um padded mattresses. Right, <laughs> and uh, and it was it was very it was very similar because you had this time out of time. And of course, when you came back down to earth, that's when you think, oh, what just happened there? Yeah. That's interesting. <laughs> and we, and the group, were very funny. We had a lot of laughs, and that yeah. that is really important. <laughs> it's so important to laugh because. This is too serious to be taken seriously. Yes, yes. <laughs> so you um, you left the TM movement, and then you set up a, a Socrates cafe in in Edinburgh. Can you explain briefly what what that was about? Well, I we studied Socrates and and Plato at the School of Philosophy. So, mm-hmm. and I was really taken with, with Socrates. I thought he was similar to Christ and, and this whole idea of not knowing. I mean, he famously said, the wise man is, or women, uh, is he who knows he doesn't know. Yes. Um, <laughs> and that was quite a hard sell, not knowing, I have to say. Um, I found it of all places in Las Vegas. We were traveling through uh, through America, and uh, I saw in a bookshop in Las Vegas a flyer for Socrates Cafe. I thought that looks really good, and I couldn't go. So when I came back to Edinburgh, I looked up the website, and there was a whole template that you could use. So we would have a long period of choosing questions and a long process so that was a reflective time because everyone put in a question and then we had to vote it was three rounds of voting to decide what question it was and then (laughs) I know it sounds convoluted but uh, it, it was part of the process of unpacking the question in your head and then we would interrogate the question were there any embedded assumptions or biases in the question and then it was really about questioning really questioning other people what's your view of this listening to their answers with empathy in other words not listening to the answer um, with the view of waiting for a space so that you could get your your tuppence worth in, <laughs> but actually listening and and questioning yourself and questioning your own beliefs. So yeah, it could you, be quite profound, yeah, yes. Did you find it, uh, talking to other people with different ideas, changed your views uh, about things? Yes, yes, every time, every time, yeah. every single time. And other people said that as well. Yeah. I wonder whether it was a, a reaction against the fairly fixed ideas of the previous spiritual organisations that uh, that you belong to. That's, kind of spirit yes. of openness. That's possible, I think. Um, Yes, I mean, one of the things I thought, I want to have no hierarchy. Yeah. Um, Yes, yes. I think you're right. Yes, I think once bitten, twice shy. (laughs) (laughs) Although some things, they're useful at the time, but you develop, hopefully, and move on. Yeah, it sounds a lovely way of just encouraging that kind of openness and listening and the recognition that actually none of us really 
really know. Yes, I mean, it did take sometimes. We we had a rolling facilitator, and some people took on that role. In, in well, everyone took on that role in different ways. Um, there was always the temptation for it to go into a debate because that's so so, so much the social norm. Yeah, but I did try to bring it back to not knowing. I do. It was a lovely morning. It was a Sunday morning. So a lot of people came and it was really nice for a lot of people, particularly living on their own, to have somewhere to go on a Sunday morning that wasn't church and they'd meet like-minded people. And and if it was a cafe, so we had lots of coffee and sometimes bacon rolls. You know, it was just really, somebody compared it, which I, I didn't quite think was, Accurate. Somebody compared it to the 18th century cafes in the <laughs> Scottish Enlightenment because uh, about the turn of the 18th century, well, it was 1603, the Union of the Crown, 1707, the Union of the Parliament, uh, the Parliaments of Scotland and England. So everyone went south. The whole court went south. Many thinkers went south. So anybody who was left in Edinburgh had to make their own their own society. Mm-hmm. And out of that came David Hume, who, who's a philosopher I really, really respect and I loved reading him as well. And mm-hmm. he, he, he had at cafes. So we weren't quite at that level. They met in the new coffee shops, but we weren't quite at that intellectual level, I have to say. <laughs> but <laughs> it was very gratifying to be compared to that. Beautiful. <laughs> so well, um, when you became ill with cancer, it, it sound, sounded like that really turned your, your life upside down. Um, a lot of things changed for you. I guess a lot of your normal activities uh, became impossible or difficult. Yes, it was. It's a shock. I mean, it's always a shock. I mean, they say when you hear the diagnosis that you don't hear anything else, and so I, I was determined that I was going to hear the rest of the the conversation and. It sounded not too bad, but of course you never know and you have to wait for biopsies and you go and um, you you have to live your life in not knowing, not knowing what's going to happen, not knowing if you're going to have a few months of treatment and you're going to get better or yeah, get, get your affairs in order. Yeah. So that fortnight, every day we went out, my husband and I, we walked locally around Edinburgh and there was one day it was a horrible wet soggy grey day that um, you occasionally get these in Scotland <laughs> I don't know if you know that yes. but uh, and it was muddy and there was smear it's that kind of rain that makes you really wet without you noticing that it's really raining and so we were walking along this path and suddenly I saw a kingfisher. I had never seen a kingfisher before. And it was such an exotic creature in this monochrome environment. I thought it was just so beautiful and turquoise and gold and just seemed like, I mean, it's just everything stopped at that moment. I thought, yes, yes, all all will be well. All manner of things will be well. Yes. You know, I didn't mean that I was necessarily going to live, but I thought, well, whatever happens, it'll be well. Yeah. So did you lose your fear of death in that in that moment? Uh, not entirely. Mm-hmm. I, I think it, I wasn't, I was anxious during the cancer treatment, but I was more anxious of having chemotherapy, which I didn't need. So 
No, I was anxious in the way I was a little anxious. But when the GP phoned up to see how I was, I kept reassuring her that I was absolutely okay. And I said, you know, I meditate and I have good support from friends. And um, and I went to a, 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 there's a sanctuary in the hospital called Maggie's Centre. It's a cancer care centre and it's a holistic centre. And they don't do any treatment, but they deal with all the things around cancer that are not medical. Although they are nurses, so they understand what's going on, but they had a creative writing group there. And they had, um, they did creative visualisation. And there I found the love of poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, it, the, the, the group, the creative writing group was led by Kathleen James, uh, no, sorry, Valerie Gillis. She's a well-known Scottish poet, a very spiritual woman. She's a Christian and spirituality comes into her work a lot and nature. So this was like going into a warm bath every every week. Mm-hmm. And she encouraged us, encouraged us to write the worst junk in the world, <laughs> just to write. And that was very freeing. Mm-hmm. You've been doing some writing before that, hadn't you? Is that right? Radio plays and things. Um, I did. I did short stories. I was quite successful with short stories in the nineteen nineties on Radio Four. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them read by a young actor I'd not heard of called. Um, gosh, I've forgotten his name. And he's very, he's very, he's very, he's very famous, but that doesn't matter. It might come back to me. Um, and I wrote comedy. Right. But it's quite tough. It's a tough career. <laughs> <laughs> you need yes. to be, you need to have another job. Oh, Alan yeah. Cummings. It was Alan Cummings. Alan Cummings. Oh, I'd never right, heard of him. Yes. I mean, okay. <laughs> um, and he was great. I mean, he made this story so funny. Um, and people were brought in and said, oh, that's it was about a four-year-old and how a four-year-old sees the world, which is mm-hmm. um, very clear um, yes. and questioning. So, uh, that was, so that was lovely, but I realised, yeah, I just have to go and get another job. This is all very well, but it, it won't bring home the bacon. Yes. So uh, it was a magazine centre that you first started writing poetry, was it? Yes. In that, in that group. Yes. 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 Okay. And then you went back to spirituality because you, you went to the direct path um, through a therapist that you, you knew. And um, I think you focused quite a lot on. Um, Rupert Svara's meditations, didn't you? The light of pure knowing and transparent body, luminous world. And I guess that's very different from what you were doing previously in the Advaita School or or TM. But did did it, did that in any way link with your earlier discovery that we're not limited by by the body? That feeling of borderlessness was the did somehow it link together with that earlier experience when you were 19 yes absolutely Uh, yes I went to the therapist because I had trouble picking up my old life and I think it's now what Rupert and Francis would call a sense of lack Mm -hmm. and also a loneliness although I had people around me friends I felt lonely and the therapist said, well, that's because you're separated from yourself. So he said, let's just be quiet for a minute. And we sat together for quite a long time. And I thought, oh, yes, 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 I've forgotten this. And he told me about Rupert. And it was very strange to go back to Advaita because I, I was done with that. I was done with spirituality. I thought, I'm not, I'm not doing any of that 
anymore. <laughs> so, but, but you know, it has a tendency to pull you back. So there it was, and I, I did. I laughed because I thought this is this is this is just something that is going to be here for the rest of my life. I can't. I can't. I can't. I can't be a normal person. And um, what's known. <laughs> <laughs> was known as a normal person in a materialist world. Yeah. yeah. Can't do it. Can't do it. <laughs> so uh, I heard Rupert and thought, yeah, that's that's very interesting. A bit like the school, but not like the school. Um, and then I found the meditations. And I thought, wow. And it was called the yoga of sensation and perception yes and i looked at the titles and they were really they were intriguing i remember one said awareness is outrageously promiscuous (laughs) (laughs) well these are not going to be boring i thought whatever these (laughs) these sessions are they're not going to be boring so my husband was playing bass guitar at the Edinburgh Fringe and we have a a garden room in our garden and so I lay back very comfortably on a lounger chair and just put on the headphones and listen to these these meditations and Mm -hmm. wow yes so sometimes sometimes people find um, with those uh, yoga meditations that uh, a lot of sort of buried feelings come to the surface in those. Did you did you encounter that or not? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes, I would sometimes cry. Mm. I would shake. My whole body would shake. But that that wasn't new. That had yeah. happened in meditation for a long time. I mean, there were certain things I knew happened in meditation. It would be a sort of woozy feeling, a loss of body sensation, a going into dark, pleasant bliss, tears, and I would shake. Yeah. But I knew about the Quakers, so I wasn't particularly perturbed by that yeah and it but the key thing was as you say yes coming to terms with not coming to terms with but welcoming welcoming feelings welcoming emotions yes allowing them to be felt in the body and look, even locating in them in the body, because emotions are so physical. Fear is so physical. It's often in feeling in the stomach or in the heart. In grief, yes, in the heart and the chest. Yeah. yeah. And then in 2020, with all the COVID lockdowns, we... We all had this wonderful opportunity of daily satsangs with Francis Lucille, and you you joined in uh, in that, didn't you? Uh, yes, I. Well, as before, the first thing I was attracted to was the meditation. Yeah. Also, it was much shorter; it was an hour instead of two hours. So I thought, well, I'll dip my toe in. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I was sitting in my attic room. Uh, you know, it's a, a sort of hippie phrase to say it blew me away, but it did. It, it was absolutely mind blowing. It was so peaceful. I, afterwards, I didn't want to move for about half an hour. I just thought, this is it. This is what I've looked for all my life. I've, I've come home. Mm-hmm. It was beautiful. Mm-hmm. What what was it about those meditations, particularly that that um, gave rise to that that response in you? Well, Francis always starts with the words something similar to allow allow everything in your experience to be exactly as it is. 
and you're in that is freedom, acceptance. And peace. You know, that that benevolent, benevolent indifference to experience. And the voice that came in and out. I don't think I heard half of it, I think. You know, when I went back later, I realised I'd not heard most of it. Yes. And that's common. Sometimes you, I know people say you listen to a meditation several times so that you, you, you really hear what's being said. Well, and every it, time it's different. Yes. Well, once it's taken you to that place of peace beyond mind, then there's not really much point in listening to more of it is it you're you're there already and it's uh, yeah. the meditation's just there if you sort of fall out of that for a bit mm. I mean it's difficult to say but something happened something happened that made me think yeah. oh this is it this is the Dalai Lama speaking to me um in Shangri-La this is what <laughs> I've looked for <laughs> I knew it. I knew it was there. I gave up. And just when I gave up the search, it came back and and found me. Yeah. Yeah. So the the meditations are are very different from what you did before in the Advaita Vedanta school in the sense that you're you're not trying to control the mind anymore you're just allowing things to to be uh, as it is was I guess that was partly a factor in what attracted you to it that kind of that kind of freedom that you don't have to do anything yes I think I think uh, I think it's such a common misperception I hear it again and again that meditation is about stilling the mind, not having negative thoughts. And, and of course it is, but that's descriptive, not prescriptive. Um, what, what I discovered even in, in the School of Philosophy is that that happened anyway. We were supposed to listen to the mantra and come back to the mantra. But if you find something much nicer than that and much more peaceful, then you're going to go with that. It's not like bothered about the bit of a rebel. <laughs> <laughs> I did, I did well, quite a lot. I mean, you know, once you've dug the hole, you throw the the trowel away. You know, <laughs> and that's probably not the best best analogy, but. Um, <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Yes. And Francis's teaching is is unusual because of his emphasis on on not knowing. So his spiritual teachings they they either tell you what to believe or they 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 tell you what they consider to be truth and then try and guide you towards. Um, experiencing that for yourself or believing that you've experienced it um, for yourself but sometimes that can provoke a bit of a a reaction against against any kind of dogma was it, was that something that you experience a, a sort of desire for freedom from from that yes i mean it goes back to socrates you you can't know. I mean, Descartes as well, just, there's nothing, very little you can know for certain. Yeah. And, you know, for instance, if, if a spiritual teacher would start telling me what would happen after death, even as a theory, I, I would begin to tune out because I think nobody knows that. Yeah. It, it, it has to be unknown because nobody's died and come back. People have got, had near-death experiences and they've 
they can see what happened right until the point that they they had to come back, but nobody has actually died for any length of time and come back. So it's not, it can't be known. And, and I really like that about Francis. And it was on your, it was on your book group, Jenny, that I had the first dialogue with Francis. And I was, yeah, I was a bit nervous because you know, I still thought he was the big man, you know. <laughs> and uh, um, he, he, it, and it was about fear of death. So he took me through, well, what can be known? And I, I knew that there's something that, rather than nothing. That's, that's a given. And that I'm aware. So in the dialogue, he took me through the dialogue that said, well, how do you know this awareness has a beginning and an end? And I was going, hmm. And he said, no, 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 I don't want to know what other people have told you. You know, I don't even want to know if 99.9% of the population, I don't want to know what they think. I think, what, what say you, Anne? What say you? How, do you know, without any doubt, that awareness has a beginning and an end. And I said, mm, no, okay, no, I'll, I'll give you that. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and uh, so that dialogue continued and that was perfect because it was exactly the way my father used to take me through any belief I had that he didn't agree with. He would take me through the Socratic dialogue and and. At the end, I would have to admit I didn't know that. He was very good at very good at dialogue. So there was a bit of my father in Francis that I really, <laughs> I really liked. Yes, and as well as be happy, I love that thing about be happy. You'll follow your heart's desire. Don't don't do practices. Don't don't get up at seven thirty or five thirty every morning and sit with a straight back and do your meditation. Only do it if it's your heart's desire. If you'd rather read a book or go and dance or whatever, do that. And that is freedom. Yeah. And that means you come to everything with enthusiasm and joy. Rather than when it's a prescribed practice, you there's a sense of duty and it's a bit of this. Francis would say a party pooper. <laughs> I, I, love, I love that phrase, party pooper. It's wonderful, isn't it? Yes. Fear is, anxiety is a party pooper. It sure mm. is, yes. Yes. I mean, that, that love of freedom seems to be a, a theme throughout your, your, your life, doesn't it? I think it's, 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 yeah. sort, of, it's sort of cropped up and it, it's kind of been the... Uh, the motivator for changing direction each each time you've changed direction seems to come from a love of freedom. Yeah, I, mean, I know this maybe sounds a bit like Mel Gibson in Braveheart shouting, <laughs> freedom! But I think it is also a very Scottish thing, the desire for freedom. Mm. Yes. But... And so, previous, I mean, we all desire that, don't we? Don't we all we all want freedom? I I think so, but I think it um it's stronger and more on, on the surface in some people than the than in others, you know. Some are, are, are very happy to accept a belief system and not to question. Um but um, yeah, I think you're very much into into the questioning side of things. <laughs> But you, you've worked in adult education and you've taught creative writing and that's that's also about showing people their freedom, isn't it? Encouraging them to let go of the, the limits they impose on themselves. Yes. Yeah, I mean, the, the creative process is very much about that. Um, and I used to prefer to teach subjects that didn't have a right and wrong answer. Mm -hmm. 
um, and I spent a lot of time with an organization called the Workers Educational Association. So we it provided training and, well, it was education. It was education, not training. We used to get a budget from um, employers for training, but we'd always put in a bit of education and it was always about questioning. And these were people who had jobs like hospital cleaners and care home workers and healthcare assistants. And we'd get them to look at how to have a discussion, how to how to put together a presentation, how to structure your thoughts in an essay, a small essay, how to tell the difference between a fact and, a, and an opinion. But, you know, these, these people were profoundly intelligent. They'd gone their whole lives thinking they had been stupid but they simply hadn't a lot of them been given the the chances for one reason or another mm. and that was extremely fulfilling i i can imagine so 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 beautiful because once someone's open and questions then that's a possibility for change isn't it that's a, a possibility for something new to uh, to, to come into their lives. And yes. yeah. they would start to learn. There was one person who was very dyslexic. Um, but a lot of like dyslexia is anxiety and a poor educational experience and terror of learning anything. Mm. And he went on to do a college course. I saw him one to one. He was particularly anxious. And he did a sociology diploma. And I remember he wrote me a sentence and I was thinking, I don't, don't even know what these words mean. <laughs> but, <laughs> but he obviously does. And, you know, that's something amazing mm. to, to see that come out of people. Mm. And do you, you also write poetry. Where, where, does your, where do your poems come from? Mm. I don't I don't know where they come from. They come from the same source as the meditation. That's all I can say. <laughs> right. And I think he, you know, as Rajna Chawla has said, they arrive in your head like thoughts. Mm. And I imagine them, and it is just a, a, a metaphor. I imagine that there's poems or first lines of poems wandering around in the ether, and you know, if somebody's receptive, they'll land and oh, Anne Hayes got her poetry book. She's got her page out. Oh well, I'll give her this line. <laughs> but if I'm away doing, or if I'm having a dream, they'll go on and oh, they'll go to Ratchna or somebody else. That's that's a bit of a conceit, but um, that that's how it feels that they arrive. <laughs> I mean, you have to do a bit of craft, but... Yes, yes. They come from the universe, yeah. So you've sent me a number of um, poems, and I I wonder whether you'd like to to read one of them, um, one called Summer Out of Space. So I, I felt that really encapsulated that feeling of borderlessness the the body has no no borders uh, which we've been talking about earlier so would you like to to read that one yes this this i wrote this one in lockdown and lockdown was in the pandemic there was well it's the pandemic still going on but there was a lot of bad things about it but there were bits of it I really enjoyed, the slowing down. And that feeling of boundarylessness of the body that I'd felt in meditation and on diamorphine in childbirth and other times was just there. 
this just just arrived and I'm thinking this was really beautiful you know, it's something that's become very not habitual but very spontaneous so summer out of space when I jettison my mirror bits of me vanish forehead eyes back my nose is a flesh-colored smudge easiest seen with one eye closed when I shut both I float in space amorphous sensation unsure of the boundary between me and other I hear the wind Chaffinch, a strimmer, close and intimate as thought. It's beautiful. I mean, not knowing is not just about not knowing facts or not knowing concepts not having beliefs, there's also that not knowing in relation to to the body. And you've, I mean, you've had a very difficult time through your life with ill health. Looking back, has has anything changed in your in your attitude towards the body? Uh, yes, yes. Uh. Yes, I have a number of physical problems, but I just sometimes have pain, as most people, a lot of people do. At my age, I'll be 70 in about six weeks. So that doesn't come without some degree of um, deterioration of the body. So, But it's been quite interesting because these physical problems have made me look to body work. Um, particularly well, Feldenkrais and clinical somatics. And these work in a very similar way to, to make you aware of the body and at the same time to let it go. So I feel... Well, I know I'm more than this body. Mm. And the physical sensations are much less if you're relaxed, if you can almost welcome them. I mean, okay, you, you take painkillers, you get rid of pain any way you can, but if that's not possible and it isn't always possible, then you, you, you welcome it. And it's interesting that that once it's welcomed, sometimes it doesn't need to keep knocking at the door. Yeah. It's been seen and it'll go away. I mean, one of the things that we, none of us know is um, when and how we're going to die. We know that the body will deteriorate and will continue to as as you said but we don't know when we're going to die are you are you afraid of that moment now or no no well i've come close to it twice there was another time i have asthma had a a severe asthma attack and twice i lost consciousness and Three times I came back, but my goodness, it was hard to come back mm. because it was so peaceful. It was like, you know, when you're really, really dog tired and it's the end of the day and you think, I can't wait to get into my bed and your head hits the pillow and you think, oh, oh yes. It was like that. Obviously, the 
process of dying might be unpleasant, but that's but that's not happening just now. So I don't have to think about that. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. So other people seem to have managed. My parents, my parents, you know, my father used to make such a fuss about the cold, but he died of cancer with hardly a complaint. And something mm. happened. Something happened to both of my parents before they died. They were they were at peace. It was palpable. Yes. I don't know if you've ever seen somebody. I've never well, it seen. It feels like passing over. Died. I mean, that doesn't yes. feel like a euphemism anymore. It feels like something passed over too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. So what is life like for you now? What does living and not knowing mean for you now in a in a practical sense? It's very it's very easy. It's I've lost I've lost a sense of duty. <laughs> I mean, it's better to do things out of love than duty. Yes. I don't think I need to keep people happy. Um, I don't. I'm quite happy to be myself. When I met Francis, I thought the phrase that came to mind was bien dans sa peau. Um, happy inside his own skin and if somebody's happy inside their own skin they're they're not trying to dominate anybody they're not trying to take over the world or create big organizations or any they're just happy and and it's palpable and I had a conversation with him in Barcelona where we just laughed and I thought yes life is easy I mean it's not I, I mean I'm not there are difficulties. There were some real difficulties when I came back from Barcelona, but they, including getting quite a bad case of COVID, but they, no time was it absolutely, no time was it terrible. Yeah. I suppose I think it's all, all things will be well, even if they're not. <laughs> And I don't have drive. I, you know, I'm bringing out a book of poetry, and it's somehow, once the poems are finished, I kind of lose interest. So I have to keep motivating myself to get this poetry book out, and people will keep reminding me, "Yes, you're supposed to be doing that." And I say, "Yes, I know. It, <laughs> it will be done, <laughs> but it will be done when this book is ready to be done, and and there's no way I can get it done a moment before then." So there's a sense of things, a sense of them. Um, a, de- a destiny that shapes my ends, rough you it. Though I will, and I, but I, blame me, I've tried a, a lot of rough viewing in my <laughs> life. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but it's best just to welcome whatever happens, I think. Mm. It makes life a lot easier. So you found your Shangri-La, I guess. Yeah, well... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you played a part in that, Jenny. I mean, your your, your zooms were, were were absolutely brilliant at the beginning because you know when I was first trying to think, well, where does this fit in? How does um, and because you knew the school and where I was coming from, you could say, well, you might be thinking this, but that might not be the case. And yeah, so that that was really really useful. Ah, uh, thank you very much for that. So so many people. Along the way, yes. and I'm yeah, I'm grateful for that. I'm, I'm grateful for all of it. I don't, I don't regret any of it. Actually, I don't regret all the mistakes. They were just. I don't regret the prodigal daughter episodes or any of that. <laughs> you know, it's just yes. it's all everything, learning. Yeah, everything we needed happened. Yeah, yes. yeah. Yes. Well, that's a. Uh, it's a perfect place to to stop. Thank you, Anne. That's has been a lovely conversation, and thank you, everyone, for for listening. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Oh.
I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the Awareness Podcast. Please remember to subscribe so that you receive a notification each time a new episode is released. Be sure to tune in next Friday for the Living in Oneness experience with Cindy Krupp and her guest Simone Anlikar in an episode entitled The Great Mystery. The Awareness Podcast is brought to you by the Teachers of God Foundation in association with Pure Presence Conferences.